Today, we are starting a new series entitled Love Builders and Love Busters. That's Love Builders and Love Busters. Uh, many of you, hopefully all of you, or most of you, remember that last spring I gave a six-part series all about our God-given vision for our church. Does anyone remember what the vision for our church is? Good, awesome. And uh, uh, can any of you remember where this vision is found in the Bible? Yes, Ephesians. Uh, uh, now, it's stated in many places in the scriptures, but in Ephesians, the first 16 verses, and especially verses 15 and 16, it's stated so succinctly and awesome. It says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's love, grow, serve. Loving God and loving people. Growing in relationship with God and growing in relationship with others. Serving God and serving the community. That's our vision. That's our mandate from God. Those are our marching orders. This is who we need to be. This is who we need to be becoming more and more. And now I know that you also remember, maybe remember that at that time I made this statement that if it's just a slogan on the wall, it will mean nothing, right? If it's just something that's nice for our bulletin, it will mean nothing. But if it becomes our DNA, if it becomes who we are as the body of Christ, then look out because God is going to do his thing through his people. God's going to do his thing through his people. The things that only he can do. And that's the vision I have. I have such a vision of God working through this body of believers to touch this community. Oh, look out. God, 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 move through this people in Jesus' name. You have more potential in the Holy Spirit, in the Lord Jesus Christ, than I think that you even realize, or that I think that you would give yourself credit for. You know, uh, this isn't in the notes, but I feel the Holy Spirit. There are some of you who you think... I can't do anything, you know, and you're waiting to feel some power like, like some super evangelist or something and for the power to zap you. Can I tell you something? God's power is made perfect in weakness. You know, all you need to do sometimes is just go up to someone and say, you know what, can I pray for you? Someone shares something, you know, and you don't need to be some super evangelist or anything. Just say, I'd like to pray for you. Can I pray for you? Or, you know, um, uh, Jesus loves you. You know, some of you need to believe that. It's, it's not for the pastors and, uh, you know, for special super people in the body. It's for you. God's power uh, and anointing can flow through you. Oh, somebody say amen to that. Hallelujah. Well, that was your bonus this morning. That part wasn't even in the notes. All right. You know, so this vision, you know, again, it's not just for some pithy saying, right, uh, something that looks good on our website. It's not something that we got because... We ate too much pizza the night before. It's God's vision for his church. So I say keep on loving, keep on growing, keep on serving, and, uh, and keep on becoming the body of Christ that he wants us to be. Now, uh, as we progress through this year, I believe that God wants to uh, kind of work in us on how to be more practical about this. To make sure it's not just something on a wall, but it's something that we're doing and living out every day. How do we love? How do we grow? How do, how do we serve? What do these things mean? And so at various times through the year, I think we're going to focus a little bit 
on that, some of the specifics of that. Uh, what does it mean to love, grow, and serve? We may design some opportunities to love, grow, and serve. We may encourage you to take advantage of the opportunities that are already existing to love and grow and serve. Like, for example, uh, it's a new year. This would be an awesome time to do something to grow on purpose and join a small group. And half of you said amen. The other half kind of looked away and said, don't make eye contact. Whatever you do, don't make eye contact with the pastor, right? Join a small group. It would be a great time to get back into Sunday school, right? Uh, we have some awesome Sunday school classes uh, for all ages. It would be a great time to start coming on Wednesday night. We have things for all ages. Pastor Bernie does an awesome class, uh, Bible class on Wednesday night, and you'll be blessed. Do something on purpose to grow or do something on purpose to serve. We have lots of awesome ministries and I encourage you, this is a great time, if you're not involved in some ministry, to get involved and let God use you in service. So right now, at the beginning of this year, we're starting this new series, Love Builders and Love Busters. And in it, we're going to ask, you know, what does love look like? And what does love not look like? What things promote love and what things discourage love? What does love look like in the body of Christ? What does love look like in my home? What does love look like at work? What does love look like in my heart? If I'm going to love, if we're going to love and be known as loving people, what are the practical things that we need to do and what are the things that we need to avoid? Now, I'm doing this series not because I think you're unloving. Someone's going to go home thinking, you know, Pastor Paul must think we're all unloving. Actually, the opposite is true. I see so many expressions of love in this church and in this body of believers, and, and that's awesome. But the Apostle Paul said, right, it's not a problem for me to remind you, right, of the things you should uh, be doing. So it's not a problem for me either. And so that's what we're going to be doing, kind of looking more deeply at what does it mean to love the body of Christ and to love God as well. And the scripture passage that we're going to be basing our series on is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, many of you will recognize this as the love chapter, possibly the most quoted passage on love in human history. It's used in weddings around the world. I bet you a lot of you have it hanging on your wall at home. It's embroidered nicely and framed there right in a prominent place in your home. It's that chapter where Paul gives what is possibly the highest and most sublime picture of what human love should look like when it's empowered by the Spirit of God. So let's begin this morning. We're going to read the whole chapter. And if you can turn there and read it with me if you want, or just listen as I read it, and then we'll begin to unpack a little, some things together. And it says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away 
put the waves of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Would you bow and pray with me and uh, repeat this prayer after me if you would? Dear Jesus, please give me ears to hear what you're saying to me. Give me eyes to see what you're doing in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, and so today, as we're opening up this series on love builders and love busters, we'll be looking at this chapter's place in the book, in the letter to the Corinthians. And it's kind of like an introductory message. Uh, In the coming weeks, we're going to look more closely at the specific love builders and love busters that we see in this chapter. But for today, we kind of want to lay uh, the groundwork. We're going to ask some broader questions about this chapter so that we can be able to have the greatest appreciation for why it is here. How many of you remember the rule of context when you're interpreting and understanding the Bible? The rule of context is that context rules. Would you all say that with me? Context rules. If we're going to understand how any passage fits within the broader context of of the book that's in, we need to understand uh, its context. And the greater we can understand that, the greater we can accurately understand what it means, and the greater that we can apply it effectively to our lives. And so today we're asking this question, why is this here? Why did Paul include this here? What was going on in the Corinthian church that Paul felt he needed to include this chapter uh, on love there? And uh, as we begin to appreciate that, it'll help us better understand all of these love builders and love busters that we're going to look at more closely. I think 1 Corinthians might be the passage of Scripture that is taken out of context more than any other passage of Scripture. Now, by that, I don't mean that people are misunderstanding it and misapplying it. But what I mean is that it's such a complete and beautiful thought. It's just so easy to kind of lift it out and look at it all by itself without looking in the context. And when we do, we sometimes miss um, some things that God wants us to see. So that's why we're going to look at this context. Now, if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, you can't help but get struck by the idea that these, this group of people is one of the most dysfunctional groups of people that I think was ever assembled on the face of the planet at any time. There's there's so much dysfunction here. I don't know if you know it, but there are some churches that are dysfunctional in other states. I don't know. They may be down south or maybe on the left coast or New England somewhere. I don't know. know, But there are some churches that are dysfunctional. And this Corinthian church, I think, is the most dysfunctional church that uh, maybe has ever been in existence. And uh, uh, as the letter begins, at first you might get the idea that things are going pretty well. He says in the first chapter there, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech, and with all knowledge. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And, you know, that sounds pretty good. That sounds like uh, things are going pretty well. However, I think that this might be the last positive thing that he says to them in the entire letter. The rest of the letter is filled with corrections and admonitions and 
frustrations. He's frustrated with what he sees in the church. He's frustrated with what is being reported to him and frustrated with their immaturity. And, uh, and so right from the get-go, as soon as his greeting is over, he begins to talk to them about these problems that are in the church. And uh, the first is, the first thing he brings up is divisions that are in the church. There are divisions among them. And these divisions were over arguments about the teachers that they were following. One would say, you know, I follow Paul. Another would say, well, I follow Apollos. Another would say, well, I follow Peter. And someone else who wanted to look even more spiritual says, well, I follow Jesus. But they were arguing about it, and they had all these divisions about it. And the sad thing is, the really sad and ironic thing is, there weren't any divisions between these apostles. They weren't competing against each other. They weren't striving against each other for supremacy. They, they didn't view each other as rivals. And yet this group of Christians had, had fallen into quarrels and arguments and divisions about whose teaching they were following. And it looks like a lot of boasting was going on, boasting about their own wisdom, boasting in other people, boasting about their own ability to win an argument or, or state something just the perfect way. And Paul says that they had become arrogant. Arrogant in how they were trying to teach God's word. And so we, we see Paul correcting this in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And he, he basically says that, you know what? It's not about your ability to win an argument. It's not about our ability to be a great orator or our ability to show how much wiser or more intelligent we are than, than anybody else. It's our, about our ability to have the humility to let Christ be our wisdom. And he appeals to them, in essence, to, to stop looking to their teachers as justifications for their arguments and to start looking at them as examples to follow. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And the situation with them was so bad that by the time we get to chapter 3, Paul says that they are unspiritual. He says he can't address them as spiritual. That is, he can't address them as of or like the Holy Spirit. He can only address them as worldly. That is, they are of or like the world. He addresses them as carnal. That is, of or like the flesh or of or like the sinful nature. He says, I can't address, you're not like the Holy Spirit, he's saying to them. You're like the world. You're like the sinful nature. And here's the really sad part. Because remember, at the beginning of the letter, he said that they lacked no spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts were in operation among them. And they thought that because they had these spiritual gifts in operation, that that was somehow proof of their spirituality. And yet he says that they are not spiritual. They are not like the Holy Spirit. They are like the world of the sinful nature. And then he goes on and he calls them infants. He says they're infants in Christ. How would you like the Apostle Paul to show up at your doorstep and say, you know, you're an infant? I mean, that would be pretty insulting, right? But that's what he says to them. In chapter, and then in chapters 5 and 6, we find out that there were problems with sexual immorality, and some of them were rejoicing over a sexually immoral situation in the church. And in the beginning of chapter 6, we find out that there were lawsuits among believers. And and, and these lawsuits, um, some of them had such divisions and disagreements, they were bringing them before worldly judges for a decision. And this is not like, you know, you had a fender bender and your insurance companies, you know, are going to court to, to figure out who was most at fault in your, in your fender bender, right? The idea here is that 
Christians arguing and fighting with each other would go to court. And in these open-air courts where these worldly judges would hear things and there were witnesses all around, you had one Christian you know, against another, uh, pointing fingers, fault-finding, accusations of wrongdoing, angry outbursts, and in front of all of these worldly people. And the idea would be, you know, as they're listening to this, you know, boy, hey, aren't those guys both part of that Christian group that meets on Sundays? You know, Christians don't seem to be very loving. Christians don't seem to, to you know, to be such good guys, you know. And, and, and Paul says that it was bringing disgrace to Jesus. Paul says that they were completely defeated already. And all of this, all of these things we've talked about, it's only the first half of the book. And we've only gone through the first half of the book. In chapter 7, we see there were problems in marriage. In chapter 8, we see this problem in which there was, uh, there were some among them who were so concerned with the exercise of what they perceived as their personal freedom that they were willing to see their brothers and sisters in Christ destroyed and fall back into sin because they wanted to exercise their personal freedom. This is what theologians call the law of Christian love. And the idea is, you can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the idea is that, you know, I may perceive that I have some freedom, that something that I can do, it's not sinful, and that I'm free to do it. But if the exercise of my freedom would cause a brother to fall back into sin, would cause a sister to fall back into sin, now we're not talking here about just they disagree with you or they're offended by it, but if it would cause them to fall back into sin, then Paul says that we should abstain from that for the sake of Christian love, for the sake of our brothers. And he goes on to say that if we don't, if we violate that law of Christian love, that we're actually sinning against Christ and sinning against our brother. Say, that's radical, isn't it? That's a radical kind of love, isn't it? And uh, some of you are looking at me like, really, Pastor, that's in there? Look it up. It's in chapter 8. Um, it's verse 12, and you can see it there. This is, in my mind, the greatest reason for Christians to avoid drinking alcohol. Some of you are going, like, what are you talking about? Because, I mean, there are many other good scriptural reasons I could do a whole sermon on for you, but more than anything else, we have in our churches across America precious brothers and sisters in Christ who have been delivered out of a bondage to alcohol. God's marvelously and gloriously delivered them and changed their life and given them newness in life, but they can't go back and even have one sip or they'll fall back into it. And I don't want to be that one person who gave them the boldness to do that. I don't want any one of my brothers who's been delivered from that to, to see me or to, know, or, or to know that I do that and be encouraged and bold and be destroyed, you know, because of what I might think is my freedom. You know, somebody say amen to that. You know, I, I, I think God's challenging some of you. you know, I believe that. That's a radical kind of love. I don't want anyone to fall into sin because of what anything I perceive is my freedom. And, and so then we go on. In chapter 9, we discover that some of them were openly criticizing Paul and Barnabas. And then in chapter 11, we, we start to see a number of problems in their worship. So much so that Paul said, your meetings do more harm then good. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine if God's testimony about that, if God showed up, the apostles showed up and said, you know what? Your meetings are doing more harm than good. May it never be, Lord Jesus. And uh, 
Yeah, and how could that be, Paul? I thought you said that they lack no spiritual gifts, but their meetings do more harm than good. And it's because, Paul said to them, when you come together, there are divisions among you. It, was, it wasn't just at the courthouse. When they came together, as well as the body of Christ, there were divisions. And he said communion was a disgrace. There were some people who were going ahead in, in little cliques of people, and, and they would bring a full meal while others were, were over here standing off to the side because they didn't have the resources to bring anything, and, and they couldn't get in with the cliques, so they would just kind of stand and wait till everybody was done eating and, uh, uh, before they could be part of the group too. And then, and then it says that some of them were getting drunk in church, of all things. So communion was a disgrace, and then uh, Paul says that they were despising the church in this, and then we come to chapter 12, and we're starting to get really close to our text now. We're starting to get close to the love chapter, and we find here that there were problems in worship. We see that even though they lacked no spiritual gifts, there were big problems with how they were using these spiritual gifts. Everyone was focused on themselves. Everyone had their own song to sing, their own scripture, their, their own idea. People were talking over each other and, and interrupting each other, and Paul says something very important right at the beginning of this discussion of spiritual gifts in chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, he says this. See if you can see the things that are really important here. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Do you see it? I mean, there's something really important here that, that they were missing, and it, and it was really causing most of their problems. They failed to recognize that unity comes from the Holy Spirit. They failed to realize the unity that is produced by the Holy Spirit because they lacked so much of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. So we all partake of the one same Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who lives in me, who abides in me, who fills me, fills you, fills my brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have the one same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lord Jesus who died for my sins, died for your sins. The same Jesus who forgives me of my sins, forgives you of your sins. And then we all have the same Heavenly Father. The same Heavenly Father who pours gifts on me and wants to bless me, wants to bless my brothers and sisters in Christ as well. We have unity because we have the same Father, the same Savior, and the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And the Corinthians were missing this big time. And so Paul goes on in verses 12 to 31 there. Uh, you can read it later, but on how diversity, God works this diversity into unity in the body of Christ. You know, the hand can't say because I'm not a foot, I don't belong to the body. And the ear can't say because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Everyone's got different gifts, and God makes one unified body out of it. And it's awesome to see. And we come to verse 25, and uh, Paul says here, and we're getting really close to our, our chapter now, there should be... No division in the body of Christ. Now, he did say earlier, remember at the beginning of this discussion on worship, he said the problem is you come together and there's all these divisions. Now he says there should be no division in the body of Christ. You know, I've heard some people actually teach that division is good in the body of Christ, that conflict is good. And uh, 
And, but that's not what the scriptures say. Now, from time to time, there will be conflict. In any family, right, there are times of time where the, the one family member has some conflict with another. And hopefully, we can work that out in a uh, godly Bible type of way. Amen? <laughs> with love and uh, with respect for one another, right? But that's not the norm. That's not God's norm. He says, ideally, there should be no division in the body of Christ. No arguments about who's the greatest, uh, no interest in controversies, no interest in gossip, and uh, uh, no parties or splinter groups within the body of Christ competing against each other, right? The children's ministry shouldn't be competing against the youth ministry, who shouldn't be competing against the young adults ministry, who shouldn't be competing against the other adults ministry, right? No competing in the body of Christ, no divisions in the body of Christ. And yet, here they were, the Corinthian church, divisions over who had the best teacher, divisions over, that led to lawsuits, social divisions that led to problems in worship, divisions caused by self-centeredness that led to disagreements about which song to sing and which scripture to use, and divisions that caused, a lack, caused by a lack of appreciation for God's work in each other. And this is really serious. Now, we're going to have an upturn in a minute, but I want you to see how serious this is with the Apostle Paul. He says it left them completely defeated. He says they were arrogant. They were bringing disgrace to Jesus. They were infants. They were despising the church of God. And I want you to see how serious he says this was. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Now, most times when I hear people quote the scriptures, often used to say things like, well, you know, we shouldn't smoke or do drugs or, or a number of other vices that would, um, you know, destroy our bodies because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, there are other scriptures that, that, that say that, but this scripture isn't really saying that. The idea here, the context is about divisions and strife in the body of Christ. And what he's saying, when he says you are the temple, he's referring to the body of believers. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are where God dwells by his Holy Spirit. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, and he's talking about destroying, damaging the body of Christ. So here's the idea. If you think that maybe it would be a bad thing, like if you were alive back then, you went into Solomon's temple, that glorious temple, and you had a, a sledgehammer with you, and you went in and just started busting everything up. Right? You came to the, the altar and started busting that up and the labor and busted that up, and then you went over into the uh, uh, holy place and started busting up the table of the showbread and the altar of incense and the, the candle, uh, candelabra there, and then you tore down the veil and went into the Holy of Holies and started busting up the Ark of the Covenant. How bad do you think that would be? You suppose God would be a little upset with that? Right? Oh, how, about, how about we bring it to today? If someone walked in here and started with a sledgehammer, just started busting everything up, busting up the walls and the lights and, and the platform, and then went up to the youth room and the young adults room, and they started busting everything up. How bad do you think that would be? That would be bad? God's saying the body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as bad as that would be, 
damaging and busting up the body of Christ is even worse. And what does God say about it? Anyone who does that, he says, if anyone destroys his temple, God will destroy them. Hey, that's kind of serious, isn't it? He says there should be no division in the body of Christ, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And finally, we come to verse 31, the second half of verse 31. It's the last half of the last verse right before our love chapter. And it says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And this is a really unique verse. It's often overlooked because remember when we said we take that love chapter out of context, when we do that and look at just at that, we often miss this verse. Now I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way to do what? He's saying, you know, you've been practicing church a bad way. You've been doing church a bad way. And now I'm going to show you a different way. I'm going to show you a better way. He's, the idea is I'm going to show you the most excellent way to do church. I'm going to show you the most excellent way to be the body of Christ. I'm going to show you the most excellent way to express Jesus to the world. And that is what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. He's saying to them, you don't have to be that church that's defeated and immature or that brings disgrace to Jesus. There's another way, an excellent way. It's the way of love, and he's going to show it to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, and then we'll end with that. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm nothing. I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He's saying, you know what, Corinthians, you've been doing church wrong. It's left you defeated, divided, powerless, and useless. And you've gained nothing. But here is a better way. It's an awesome way. It's a way that brings glory to God. It's a way that leaves your spirit full. It, it's, it's the most awesome, excellent way to be the body of Christ. Would you all stand with me as we're going to go to prayer?